0: Thank you so much for drawing us together and I pray that I would not get in the way of what you plan to say. Lord, speak to our hearts in powerful ways, we pray, to the glory of Christ's name and the extension of his kingdom. Amen. Well, last week we saw Paul finally arrive in Jerusalem. He delivered the offering from the Gentile churches and met with the leaders of the church there who asked him to participate in a purification ceremony with four other men to really put to rest any rumors that he had turned against Jewish traditions. However, when he entered the temple, several Jews from Asia who had rejected Christ as their Messiah stirred up the worshippers there. They continued to falsely accuse him of preaching against Judaism, their law, and their temple. And they also dishonestly alleged that he had brought one of his Gentile traveling companions into the sacred area of the temple. This was an act that was punishable by death according to the Jewish religious leaders and an accusation designed to inflame the crowd. We left Paul last week in the hands of an angry mob who'd snatched him from the temple area and begun to beat him. Let's pick up the story now in Acts 21 verse 31. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting away with him. Had the Romans not intervened, Paul might have easily been killed by the mob. Binding him in the way that Agabus the prophet had predicted, the commander had Paul removed to the army barracks at the nearby fortress of Antonia in the hopes of figuring out the truth. But the angry crowd followed them and was so violent that Paul had to eventually be carried by the soldiers. Verse 37 As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, "'May I say something to you?' "'Do you speak Greek?' he replied. "'Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago?' Paul answered, "'I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people.'" Paul's courage really amazes me as he asks to address the crowd even in those dangerous circumstances. But that's not the only thing that shocks the commander. He is astonished to hear the Greek language coming from this man whom the crowd were out to lynch. Some years before, an Egyptian had promised the band of desperate men who followed him that he would make the walls of Jerusalem fall down. Though the Roman army had dealt very swiftly with his followers, the Egyptian had escaped and it seems that the commander thought Paul was the revolutionary who had now returned. Paul corrects him, revealing that he is a Jew from the city of Tarsus, a citizen of an extraordinary city. What Saul is really referring to is the fact that he is a Roman citizen. However, the commander doesn't understand him at this point. Look at verse 40. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speaking in Aramaic, they became very quiet. So Paul switches from Greek to Aramaic, and as he speaks to the crowd in the language of the Jews, they fall completely silent. He calls those present brothers and fathers, and then he goes on to say, Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. So, Paul's defense is not to argue with the mob who are out for his blood, but rather to relate his own personal experience. And we'd do well to learn from that, as personal experience is the most unanswerable argument on earth. He immediately identifies with them as being Jewish, but also reveals that he'd been brought up in Jerusalem and studied under Gamaliel, one of the finest teachers in all of Israel. He'd been thoroughly trained in the law of Moses and was zealous for God, just as were his accusers. In fact, he'd persecuted the followers of Christ, he says, killing some and throwing others, both men and women, into prison. He said the truth of what he was saying could easily be confirmed by the high priest and the Jewish ruling council because they knew that he'd worked on their behalf, traveling as far away as Damascus to arrest and punish the followers of Jesus Christ, who were known as the Way. Paul is making the point that he'd been very much like them, but that something had happened that changed him completely. Verse 6, he says, About noon as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. His testimony is very familiar to us, but notice how clear he is here that it was Jesus of Nazareth who spoke to him on the road, and that in persecuting Christ's people, he was in fact persecuting Jesus Christ himself this face-to-face meeting with christ forever transformed paul's life blinding him in the process and he was instructed to go into damascus where he'd be given a new assignment this time from the lord himself A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Paul describes Ananias as a devout observer of the law of Moses and he emphasizes that he was highly respected by all the Jews who lived in Damascus, giving his words and actions great importance. By the power of God, Ananias restored Saul's sight and told Paul that he had been especially chosen by God to know his will, to see the Messiah and hear his words, and to be a witness to all people of what he'd seen and heard. In describing the Lord as the God of our fathers, those hearing the testimony would have understood that Ananias was talking about the God of the Jews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul is wanting his listeners to understand that he had not come to destroy the ancestral faith, but rather to reveal how Christ fulfilled it. And he urged them to be cleansed of their sin by trusting in Jesus Christ. Keeping his story as short as possible, Paul mentions nothing of how his life was eventually threatened in Damascus, causing him to flee. He simply recalls what God told him. Verse 17 When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. "'Lord,' I replied, "'these men know that I went from one synagogue to another "'to imprison and beat those who believe in you. "'And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there, "'giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. "'Then the Lord said to me, "'Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles.'" The Jews had been listening quietly up to that point, but when Paul revealed that God himself sent him to the Gentiles, the crowd exploded with rage. Verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. If Paul had preached the law of Moses to the Gentiles, all would have been well. But because he preached the grace of Christ to them, the Jews were enraged. They shouted, took off their outer garments and threw dust in the air, which was a common way of showing disapproval in those days. The commander, who apparently didn't understand Aramaic, had no way of knowing what Paul had said to cause such an uproar, but he understood that such behavior could not continue, and so he ordered Paul to be taken back into the barracks and be beaten as a way of quickly extracting either the truth or a confession from him. Verse 25 tells us As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Paul wasn't afraid to die for Christ here or anywhere else. But believing that God the Holy Spirit wanted him to see Rome, he knew there was still work for him to do. And so he revealed that he was a Roman citizen by birth. The commander was terrified. He realized that he'd been about to make a terrible error. To flog a Roman citizen without a trial would not only have resulted in his dismissal, it would have cost him his life. And so the commander quickly loosed Paul from his chains. The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to them, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself... Violate the law by commanding that I be struck. The commander was in a difficult position. He knew the Jews were not easy to oversee, and that if one was not careful, a posting to Judea could very well be the end of a political or military career. The fact that Paul was a Roman citizen only made the situation more complicated. So far, no formal charge had been laid against him, and so, seeking to find out how Paul had caused such outrage, the Roman official brought both groups together. Under normal circumstances, the Sanhedrin was to be addressed respectfully as rulers of the people and elders of Israel, but Paul boldly challenged them from the start. It seems as if he knew that there is no going back now, and so he called them his brothers, thus making himself equal with the religious leaders. When he informed them that he had fulfilled his duty to God and that his conscience was clear before the Lord, the high priest, who was named Ananias, ordered that Paul be struck. Such action was indeed a violation of the law of Moses, and Paul quickly pointed out his hypocrisy. Calling the high priest a whitewashed wall may not seem like an insult to us, but they certainly understood what Paul meant. Because the law of Moses warned that touching a dead body made a person ceremonially unclean, it was the custom to paint tombs white so that none might be touched by mistake. In calling the high priest a whitewashed wall, Paul was in effect calling him a whitewashed tomb, meaning that the religious leader had brought nothing but defilement to Israel. The apostle wasn't wrong in what he said. Verse 4 tells us those who were standing near Paul said, You dare insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Exodus 22 does teach that we're not to speak evil about our rulers and there are different opinions concerning Paul's response here. It is indeed possible that Paul may not have known that the man he was addressing was the high priest, but perhaps Paul was more likely implying that because Ananias was well known as a glutton and a thief, no one would ever guess that he held that high office historians confirm that this particular high priest was a brutal dictator who was more interested in keeping rome happy and advancing himself than he was in serving god and protecting the interests of his own people Then Luke reveals that Paul knowingly made a claim that he knew would cause argument among those present. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he had said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided." The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Because of his past, Paul knew that the Sanhedrin was made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees, whose beliefs were sometimes opposed. The Pharisees accepted the whole of the Old Testament, and so they not only believed in angels and spirits, but they also accepted the truth about resurrection. By contrast, the Sadducees acknowledged only the writings of Moses, and because Moses had not mentioned these things, they refused to believe in them. When Paul claimed to be a Pharisee and said that he was on trial because of his hope of the resurrection of the dead, it effectively split the Sanhedrin and a violent argument followed that also involved their opposing theology over spirits and angels. The two groups were so passionate in their disagreement that followed that the commander feared Paul would be physically harmed and he ordered him returned to the barracks once more to protect his life. Things did not appear to be going well for Paul at this point. Perhaps it would have been easy for him to give in to discouragement, but Luke takes the time to reveal God's kindness in the midst of his terrible predicament. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. When everything was at its darkest, Jesus drew very close to Paul and encouraged him. Reminding his apostle that his mission was not yet complete. God had more for him to do, including testifying in Rome. This word from the Lord would provide Paul with great encouragement in the months and years ahead, for as we shall soon see, his problems were far from over. Verse 12 says, The next morning the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We've taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we've killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went to the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting some more accurate information about him don't give in to them because more than forty of them are waiting in ambush for him they have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him they are ready now waiting for your consent to their request The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, Don't tell anyone you've reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix." here we see two things first we see the lengths to which the jews would go to silence paul under certain circumstances the jews regarded murder as justifiable and so forty men took a solemn vow promising neither to eat nor drink until paul had been assassinated Fortunately, their plan was laid bare by Paul's nephew, who not only informed Paul, but the Roman commander as well. Second, though, we see the lengths to which the Roman government would go in order to administer unbiased justice. Paul was a prisoner but he was a Roman citizen and therefore the commander mobilized a small army to see him taken in safety to Caesarea to be tried before the governor Felix. The fact that the commander was willing to send 470 men to guard Paul on his journey shows just how volatile the situation was and how God uses all things to accomplish his purposes the commander whose name was claudius lysias sent his men with a message of explanation for the governor he wrote a letter as follows claudius lysias to his excellency governor felix greetings this man was seized by the jews and they were about to kill him but i came with my troops and rescued him for i had learned that he is a roman citizen I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. Pontius Pilate no longer ruled Judea and Felix was now governor in the official headquarters in Caesarea now although claudius lysias was certainly an honorable man he was also a shrewd one as well he stretches the truth in his letter concerning what had happened in order to put him and his men in the best possible light in verse twenty seven He gives the impression that he rescued Paul because he'd learned he was a Roman citizen. But of course we know that he only learned of Paul's citizenship when he was about to have him flogged, but that he fails to mention. He doesn't want to admit to having done anything illegal concerning this Roman citizen. He concludes by telling the governor about the plot against Paul and advises that he will be sending Paul's accusers to Caesarea to state their complaint to Felix in person. And that, unfortunately, is where we'll have to leave our story for today, but we'll pick it up again next time. May God bless you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you encouraged Paul at his darkest moment, that you came near him and told him to take courage and gave him hope for his future. Lord, I pray that in the darkest times of our lives, we too would look to you to give us the courage in order to go on. It is in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.